0: What are you doing?
1: Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS.
2: My name is Andrew Tevitt, and I'm postdoctoral research associate at the center. And today we're starting a new series of conversations about the challenges facing philosophy and Christian faith in the wake of 2020. It's been a rollercoaster year to say the least. And many of us have been left wondering how to look ahead as we think about the increased visibility of systemic racism, the effects of the Trump presidency, and the ongoing reality of the pandemic. Focusing especially on old and new political questions, this series invites scholars and educators within and outside the ICS community to tell us about what's at the forefront of their minds as they contemplate a post 2020 world. Today, we're joined by Ron Kuipers, Associate Professor of Philosophy of Religion, Director of the CPRSE, and President of ICS, and by Gideon Strauss, Associate Professor of Worldview Studies, and Academic Dean at ICS. We could think of no better way to kick off this new series than by hearing from Ron and Gideon about what's captured their attention lately. And how the past year has affected their thinking about political questions. So let's get started. This past year has posed its fair share of challenges. In the midst of a global pandemic, and in light of our increasingly polarized political landscape, we've seen many of our most familiar assumptions and categories questioned. So at Critical Faith, we wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on how the events of the last year have affected our ways of thinking, and on what our role in society can and should be as political philosophers working in a faith tradition. Today we're beginning the conversation right at home with Ron Kuypers and Gideon Strauss, two senior members at ICS whose academic and personal concerns overlap in addressing questions about faith and lived political life. So welcome, Ron and Gideon. We're looking forward to hearing what's been on each of your minds lately.
0: Nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Before we get into our main topic, I thought that it would be good to give both of you an opportunity to situate yourselves and introduce us to the kind of work that you do so that we have a sense for how each of you is approaching things. How would you characterize yourself as a philosopher? What are the kinds of questions you ask and what sources in particular do you draw on in your work?
3: So I consider my my specialties philosophy of religion, but within that I consider myself to be a social and political philosopher of religion. So my research and academic interests focus mainly on the role religion plays in public life, what form and shapes religion takes in a secular or post-secular age, and then also what does it mean to inhabit uh, a religious perspective or to be religious in terms of gaining any critical purchase on our world uh, and including on our own uh, aspects of our own faith orientation?
0: Yeah. So I would say as a scholar, uh, I study craft, or in other words, skilled practice, uh, using what comes to hand to do that. Usually I draw on phenomenology, but paying attention to ethnographic and related Techniques to inform the practice of phenomenology. So, in my research, that usually relates to asking questions that sound like, What is it like to? And in my teaching, it usually translates into courses that have or that could have the words how to in their title. And so, with regard to politics, my attention is on statecraft and the practice of citizenship.
2: So we're very interested to hear each of you talk, um, especially given your overlap in terms of Gideon your work on statecraft and Ron, your work on social and political philosophy, I guess, within philosophy of religion. So that that leads to our, our, our second question here. So this past year has been tumultuous, to say the least. The killing of George Floyd and the protests it generated have catapulted questions about structural racism to the forefront of our collective consciousness. The pandemic has forced us to devise new ways of not being together you might say and has revealed some unpleasant economic realities within our society and the trump presidency in the u.s has created a litany of alarming trends not the least of which being the rise of populism and the loss of faith so to speak in truth so when you look over the landscape of the past year and you think about the possibilities for political engagement faithful citizenship etc what new questions have arisen for you or alternatively, what old questions have returned to the fore as you as you think about two thousand and
3: twenty? Definitely, new questions have arisen for me, and really, the question of race came up for a lot of people, obviously, but came up for me uh, in particular because the events that we witnessed, you know, on the news, say the killing of George Floyd, being a paradigmatic example of that led me to question in my own self why it was that I hadn't actually taken the issue of race very seriously, I guess, in my own scholarship, in my teaching, and in my research. You know, part of it was that I never felt like it was my issue or whatever, um, and I, I think that's what's changing with a lot of people when you start to see that in spite of, uh, you know, a long history, and I'm talking more about an American history here, and Canada has its own history. Of you know legislative struggles and struggles for recognition and and some political success that in the twenty early twenty first century we could still be where we are with respect to systemic racism came home to me as a bit of a wake up call. I do I did notice that in my students so in the generation the millennial generation I guess that would be mostly um, race and embodiment and things like that are really front of mind in a way that they never were. It seems to me for my generation a lot of that could have to do with the fact that I'm a white male European Christian and never had to experience the kind of racism, you know, and, and 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 racist violence that we'd witnessed on television. So through just kind of listening and hearing, you know, racialized people talk about what kind of change they would like to see, what they need, what kind of even discomfort they would like majority people to live through in order to address these issues, that's that's sort of felt a bit convicted by that. So um, like a lot of other schools ICS put a put out a statement during the time during over the summer uh, when a lot of these events were happening in, in rapid succession um, an anti-racist statement and we decided quite quickly at ICS that that wouldn't be enough and that we try to have a extended conversation where we didn't just look at say what's wrong with society but we'd look at into our own selves and go why have we at ICS paid scant attention to this issue uh, and it hasn't always been like that i In the very early days of ICS, um, we sponsored conferences in partnership with the NAACP in Chicago. You know, we're talking 1968 when cities were burning and campuses were rioting and things like that, right? And I guess in my own philosophical practice, like, uh, I spent a lot of time working in the school known as American Pragmatism. And that has a lot of Black philosophers in it, you know, people like Cornel West and Eddie Glaude and uh, V. Denise James. And... W. E. B. Du Bois is considered to be, uh, you know, in the first generation of pragmatists with John Dewey and William James. And I did have a reading by Du Bois in my pragmatism and religion seminar, but that was it. And I quickly realized that I could quite easily just transform this course and devote it entirely to Black thinkers in that tradition for their thoughts on race and religion. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm in the middle of reshaping the course so that it'll be a course that uh, looks at uh, Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, some readings from Cornell West, and a book by Eddie Glaude on John Dewey called In a Shade of Blue. And I guess what I'm learning there is that the Black pragmatists sound a tragic note that I think is very important to heed. And then there was a line in Du Bois's book where he says, you know, no matter how you look at it, white Christianity is a miserable failure, is the line. And yeah, you know, uh, to think about the Western European expression of Christianity as history, as a failure. That's the thing that I'm trying to allow to land on me and just to understand
2: why someone would utter it and and how it's true. That's really interesting. And I can relate to a lot of that, the sense of discomfort or nervousness in approaching um, new questions about race, especially as someone who is also a white male Christian of European descent, I guess. Another thing that, that I found especially, I guess, compelling about our, our current context is how certain you know, some assumptions or, or ready-to-hand concepts that I have are kind of no longer available in the same way, um, are no longer appropriate. Like, I, I think for me, I think about the Arendtian idea of gathering people around the table as a way to establish objectivity. Questions of social justice are about including more people around the table. Now it seems like, you know, so much of the political discourse is, isn't about getting more seats at the table. It's about like, dismantling the table and and rebuilding it. I I wonder whether that sense of tragedy hits you in a similar way.
3: I think that strain in Black pragmatism um, hits me in a spiritual way. You know, Cornel West refers to it as the blues, and Eddie Glad's book is called uh, In a Shade of Blue. And it's that idea that the blues are also a form of music, uh, a profoundly rich artistic contribution to American culture. And they're meaning to speak about that as well. And the blues are not, not just tragedy and, and absurdity, but it's a lament in the scriptural sense of grief rather than despair, right? So it's a working through pain, suffering, and that kind of thing. Now, so what I'm struggling with, I guess, spiritually is I, I do feel spiritually that the white majority needs to join in and lament these failures. What does it mean for them to face this reality? And it's also lament it? From that side that's different right so i can only speak from that perspective because well, i don't know what it's like to be on the other side in a very real and inescapable way and yet with someone like cornell west i recognize a profoundly broken situation that cries out for redemption of some kind and that as a christian we're called to join those efforts to heal those rifts and and to help society find a way to move forward together so Yeah, you kind of want to humbly enter a space where you can also join a lament of some kind, but also
2: recognizing that you can't really lament in the same way or for the same reason. Great. Thanks very much. And now the same question to Gideon now. So as you think about all of that, and as you think about possibilities for political engagement and faithful citizenship, what new questions have arisen for you or what old questions have returned to the fore? For me... Uh, Thinking about
0: the question that you raised, Andrew, is sort of punctuated by two recent uh, events. The one is the, the American insurrection of January 6th, in particular, as kind of like a culmination of American events over the past four or so years. And then the other was a colloquium I participated in that was hosted by the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa on faith, race and inequality in the South African context. Um, and it was the culmination of a research project that I was involved in, in the town of Stellenbosch in South Africa. And so I would say emerging out of this sort of broader context, but with those two punctuations in mind, the, the questions I'm asking myself about at the moment, sort of, sort of in the first place, an interrogation of democracy and then adjacent to that, what I would call the problem of America. So in the colloquium a week ago, what surprised me, and it shouldn't have surprised me, was listening to younger scholars in the African context, really questioning representative democracy as it is lived, and questioning representative democracy because of its genealogy as a North Atlantic formation, questioning it uh, in particular with reference to to the, the problem that America poses, uh, both in terms of its internal practices, with regard to the politics of race, but then also the place that it occupies in the global imagination as a shaping example of of what a North Atlantic democracy might look like, you know, in the face of the alternative possibilities of, of authoritarianism, and seen from a South African perspective, people are asking themselves. Quite honestly, do we want to be America or do we want to be China? The challenges posed by populism uh, as uh, in, in many people's perspective, a lived potential alternative to a representative democracy and the possibilities of a more radical or a more direct democracy of one or another kind. So again, as I said, I was, I was surprised by the seriousness and the directness with which people were questioning uh, democracy in in the colloquium a week ago. But I can understand that against the backdrop of these events of the past few years. and, uh, And specifically, you know, with regard to the question of does democracy bring about justice? Does it bring about justice for black people, whether that is in America or in Canada or in or in South Africa?
2: Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Because what, what you say about alternative ways of thinking about democracy or alternative ways of thinking about politics that are not democracy is really interesting, especially for those of us who come from a, a North Atlantic context where, you know, the, the idea of, of democracy You know, having a seemingly obvious meaning, and that being, you know, by definition, good, is pretty straightforward. So the idea that there would be imagined alternatives to that is very interesting, and I just wonder: are there specific features of perhaps new possibilities for thinking about democracy or politics in the in the South African context that would distinguish it from North Atlantic democracy in a way that might not look so familiar to the North Atlantic eye?
0: Yeah, I find actually find that a wrenchingly difficult question because my personal Autobiography as a citizen is as one who invested the 1980s, so my teens and my, my early 20s, in participating in the struggle against apartheid. And that was conceived by those most of those of us who participated in that struggle as a struggle for democracy. Specifically, a struggle for a representative democracy in which every South African adult would have the rights of citizenship, including the right to elect representative governments on the local, provincial, and national levels in that country. And so, this interrogation of democracy is not as it's not a theoretically unambiguous one or an easy one for me. It's a, it's personally troubling for me. And so I found myself in a slightly complicated place where, on the one hand, I'm someone who, among other things, invested three and a half years of my life in serving out a community service sentence because of my participation in the struggle against apartheid. So a deep commitment to democracy and representative democracy. At the same time, a reader of... Uh, Christian political thinking from the 19th century through to the 21st century that already interrogated the liberal roots of North Atlantic representative democracy and questioned the particular expression of democracy within the context of North, North Atlantic capitalism. So with ambiguity right from the start for me, and now being in a place where I kind of want to wave the flag in defense of liberal democracy, given that in the North American context, the immediate enemies of liberal democracy are, you know, ethno-nationalist populists. In the global context, the ranking alternatives to liberal democracy is the authoritarianism or more than authoritarianism of China and Russia. And in the African context, specifically in the South African context, I feel that even 25 or 30 years is a short period of time to, to give representative democracy a fair chance to show its results. So this integration of democracy is one in which I find myself actually a partisan of democracy, uh, rather than, uh, than one of its opponents. But, but I do that with a troubled conscience because I don't think Christian democracy or Christian Democrats like myself have ever been entirely comfortable with liberal capitalist expressions of democracy. I think we quickly conjoin the the words liberal and democracy.
3: And I don't think they're necessary. Liberal democracy is one version of democracy. And, you know, I think pragmatism for sure is an American philosophy of democracy. Like it's democracy is a So we'd have someone like Jeffrey Stout still speaking in favor of democracy, where someone like a political thinker like Sheldon Wallen thinks there is no real democracy here. It's all managed. But liberalism as a political philosophy comes with a whole baggage and host of assumptions about what it means to be human, Mm -hmm. really atomizes the individual and focuses on the individual uh, apart from community or abstract uh, notion of, of what it means to be human that when followed through does reduce humans to their functions as consumers. And you know, a lot of, so there's a lot of historical baggage with liberalism that's coming home to roost now. And democracy same, tends to get, and I think populism and ethno nationalisms are ascendant simply because the liberalism in liberal democracy doesn't allow for the democratic formation of meaningful communities and group identities. But I think some version of democracy in terms of political organization is still something like I'm with Gideon there that I would want to stand up for or uh, yeah. find ways of achieving solidarity and thicker forms of, of community while not abandoning democracy,
0: hopefully. Yeah. You know, it's. I think, Ron, I would completely agree with you on really on everything you've just said. And and this is part of the excitement for me to, to sort of always be asking the question, you know, what does Toronto have to do with Stellenbosch? And to try and think as a philosopher, but also straightforwardly as a citizen, about the implications of these two locations for me. And I think the, the privilege for me of having as an, as interlocutors, like young theologians in that setting and younger academics more generally, um, and I mean, honestly, just younger people are asking, so what is what has democracy done for me? And that's in the context of, of a country where there is more absolute poverty in South Africa now than there was before the advent of democracy, there's greater inequality now than there was before the advent of democracy. And, I, and I, so I think the questions are very real and very live. They are questions that are perhaps a little easier to avoid when you're, like me, spending most of my time in Toronto, I think these questions are hard to avoid right now if you're in Washington, D.C., but they're hard to avoid daily when you're in a place like Stonewash.
2: So I I wonder how you see each other's work as speaking to the current political climate. So what's one or two things that you're especially curious about in each other's work? Or is there a particular topic or event that you'd like to hear the other comment on?
0: So over the, the past few years, I've had the privilege of getting some glimpses of ron's scholarship through uh, his teaching two years ago i think it was uh, ron taught a course on the contemporary uh, uptake in attention for paul the apostles work in contemporary political philosophy a year ago uh, he taught a class on hannah Arendt, and this year uh, he's teaching on pragmatism and specifically black pragmatists and I think while the philosophers that received attention in each of those courses do so in quite different ways, they all offer resources for resistance against political cynicism. And that intrigues me in in Ron's work. I'm particularly curious about the resources that Ron sees for a resistance against cynicism in political theory and political life. I was intrigued earlier on in this conversation by the mention of sort of like the tinge of lament or the blues in the work of black pragmatists. As far as that is not milliarist, but it's not cynical either. And so I'd be very curious to to hear, because right now I think it is genuinely easy to become cynical about political processes. The blatantly cynical exploitation of the system by by powerful beneficiaries of that system in the American context and elsewhere, similarly would, I think, easily provoke cynicism. So how do you not just go and sit in your barrel and curse the world? Yeah, well, thank you
3: for that way of summarizing my last three courses, because that hadn't actually occurred to me, though implicitly, I think you're right, that that is something that motivates me. The Paul course, I was just curious about why why are they reading Paul now? And then when I realized it was because these were largely left-wing thinkers who wondered why the revolution failed and they're going well, well how how, come, how could this paul guy pull it off <laughs> maybe there's some lessons to learn there but then they learn things about what paul says about what it means to be grafted onto the people of god and what it means to from a really uh historical jewish perspective think about the tikkun olam or the healing of the world and to have that be something that you know paul says is something everybody can be part of now yeah so you know there's obviously <laughs> lots there for for resisting political cynicism i think that's that is also why said, like an atheist like the jew reads paul because he didn't want to give in to the cynicism um i i'm not 100 percent sure about that but um but it strikes me as that would, that would make some sense the strain of the blues i think this is the most important thing about avoiding cynicism and i learned this from wendell berry he um contrasts grief and despair and, and, he, and he creates a coupling, uh, two couplings. He couples grief with, with hope and he couples uh, despair with optimism. Mm-hmm. The difference between hope and optimism is that hope can, is resilient enough to withstand the failures that are going to come along. And that's, I think, where we get that phrase hope against hope from. Optimism is usually too simplistic, usually too... Easily disappointed, and when when optimism gets disappointed, it it collapses into despair. Is basically what Barry says there. If I'm get if I'm remembering correctly. So the response to hopes that are dashed isn't despair, but grief. And grief, like I mentioned before, is a kind of a working through, a lamenting. Uh, and so so cynicism is a form of uh, of despair where a crushed optimism gives up. Hmm. And if instead of despairing, we lament. And that's a crucial phenomenological difference between the two moods. That would be a process of staying with the suffering and with the damage, with uh, listening to it, attending to it, w- working with it, trying to alleviate it. That uh, in itself, in and of itself, will give rise to hope again. And, you know, I can say this all intellectually, it doesn't make it easy mm-hmm. to pull off. But I, I think if we don't lament the current, you know, what 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 uh, Cornell West calls our twilight civilization. Mm-hmm. It's a civilization that's go- coming to an end—the—the uh, the pox Americana, or whatever you want to call it—the—the—the the, the, the global consumer capitalist liberal consensus <laughs> it will either lead us into environmental um, devastation, or we will repent of it and come up with an alternative somehow that will be more fruitful and more healing and more uh, include more people and and really reach for abundant life. So so right now, to me, our cultural moment is one of lament so that we can avoid cynicism
2: and despair. So, Ron, I want to pose the same question to you about about how you see Gideon's work uh, speaking to our current political climate. So if there's something in particular you're curious about in Gideon's work or an event or or issue you want him to speak to, now's your chance.
3: (laughs) All right. So what I've been reflecting on in, in sort of in Gideon's work, and you started to talk about this already in the answer to one of the previous questions. I'm, I guess, mostly fascinated by your African experience mm. and uh, and your understanding of not just South Africa, but the entire continent. And you do hear a lot of talk today about how, you know, that Africa is going to somehow kind of emerge in short order uh, on the global stage in some way. You know, so you, you have this you've done this research project with the Nagel Institute in South Africa where you've been talking to. Young South Africans about the future of the church in in post apartheid south africa and 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 in your last question, you were talking about this is these same young people and there's more cynicism towards the the possibilities of democracy as a form of political organizing so I'm just yeah I'm just really curious more about how you see South Africa and Africa emerging on the global stage as a voice that can maybe be some kind of alternative beacon to light our way out of the dim
0: oh yeah. Yeah, so I don't want to put pressure on Africa to be messianic for the planet. That's a good point. <laughs> I I would agree with people who would say that if the effect of what happened in Africa is going to be much more thoroughly felt in the rest of the world, starting around the middle of the century, and you're beginning to get glimpses of that in a variety of ways, starting around 2050, 2060. Um, Africa will become the demographic point of gravity on the planet uh, when countries like Nigeria and Ethiopia uh, will start to exceed in population numbers. And I think when you when you're faced with the sheer effect of demographic change, it uh, increases the impact of a place on on the rest of the world, specifically as Uh, those countries become economically much more significant just because of the demographic realities. And you're beginning to see that in cultural effects already. So the the effect of African popular culture in the rest of the world is becoming significant. The interaction specifically between African countries and China is uh, profoundly shaping uh, global culture economically uh, artistically politically in, in, in important ways and that is a shift uh, from uh, the realities of the 20th century in which africa could be avoided you could ignore africa you, you need not know anything about africa you could exploit africa without consequences you could play your imperial and counter-imperial games in africa but i think africa um, African actors will gain an increased degree of agency in, in the context of global reality. So just to say, yes, I agree with that broad assessment, what the nature of the changes will be brought about by uh, the unavoidability of Africa in the late 21st century as obviously unpredictable. Two significant considerations would be the response of Africa to the ever-intensifying climate crisis, because African countries will be among those most profoundly affected, uh, specifically those African countries around the equator. And you will have very large numbers of very young Africans faced with very difficult circumstances because of climate change. And they will do something. Um, And so what will that be? Another factor to be considered very seriously is the reality that Africa is could be called the most Christian continent. It it is a continent where the vast majority of people sort of below a line that stretches from the middle of Nigeria to the top of Kenya would self-identify as Christian above that line. It is um, a more complex mix of people who would identify as Christian or Muslim. And that line constitutes flashpoints of conflict between a kind of a freshly rising African Christendom and uh, a similarly um, sort of religiously and politically integralist Islam Uh, And so, you know, what what an African Christendom will mean for the future of the world is going to be very interesting. It's entirely unpredictable whether an African Christendom will be uh, oriented towards democracy or not, oriented towards autocracy or not, um, and and what that would look like. And so I think on the one hand, paying attention to what is happening in in Africa is uh, necessary. Uh, for anybody who wants to think about world affairs from whatever discipline uh, or out of whatever practice. And then secondarily, I think people like myself who have um, unavoidable entanglements with Africa, uh, there's a, a a vocation for a certain kind of activist scholarship to propagate for the best out of Christian history when it comes to to political economy in particular. So
3: just to follow up to that, I didn't mean to put messianic pressure on Africa when I said, is there you know, a way that they will light out of the dim? But is there anything, any political movements on, at the grassroots level that you see that could become Pan-African that would offer, that have some hope for creating some kind of difference in the way we do, in, in how we approach things that might be more hopeful than than what we have on offer right now?
0: So there are many, and they take different shapes. I have a very partial awareness of what is happening across the continent as a whole. I will say that the project in which I, I've been involved for the past few years has that was in itself part of an Africa-wide interactive project between 14 schools, seminaries, graduate schools, called the African Theological Advance, where these schools um, made an attempt to engage in research projects that could begin to speak to one another in the generation uh, or the bringing about of at least a pan-African dialogue among Christian theologians as scholars around issues of common concern across the continent that have political implications. So, I would say that that kind of Pan-African dialogue uh, is it, one of the more promising things that is, that is happening. Those theological schools uh, are situated within usually ecumenical church contexts, so they are in deep connection to their local, regional and national uh, uh, faith communities, specifically Christian faith communities. And so that's exciting. It's exciting to be able to be an observer in that kind of dialogue um, and specifically to observe what the questions are that are being asked. Right at the top of, of the list of questions would be the role of churches in the institutionalized sense and the role of Christians as communities of faith that. Uh, sort of extend beyond their institutional churches in addressing uh, problems of inequality within the African context and between Africa and, and the rest of the planet. I would say pay attention to the questions that are being asked and pay attention to how those questions are being uh, answered.
2: In our conversation, we've we've talked about issues surrounding race and, and philosophy, and we talked about democracy. In light of those issues or, or any other issues that have come up in our conversation, I'm wondering what each of you think has been or should be the contribution of Christian or reformational philosophy. What's one way in which that tradition of thought can speak to our, our political climate? I think it's
0: Steve Earle who has a song uh, with the title God is God, And uh, he has this recurring line in the song, I believe in God, but God ain't me, or I believe in God, but God ain't us. And and I would suggest that at at least those traditions of Christian political thought that have informed my own thinking and practice would have that as the central commitment, the central commitment that God is God and God ain't us. And so... Out of that commitment to, to God being God, taking a stance of resistance against claims or demands for allegiance from other persons or powers on the whole of our lives. And so I think in that sense, a Christian contribution to, to, to the contemporary problems of political life would be one of saying no to populism, no to nationalism, no to a Christian integralism because it makes a demand on us that is proper only from from god's self what do you mean by christian integralism
3: by the way because we use the integrity of faith and learning as a as a term of approbation around
0: our parts yeah so so christian uh, uh, integralism is a tradition and uh the action francaise in in france in the 1930s and 1940s was its primary expression it had uh, it was embodied in Brazil, Argentina, a number of other places. And basically it's the insistence that, uh, the political community as a whole has to be Christian. And, and so, so it has, in, it's integrally Christian in the sense that you, if you're a Jew, you can't be really a Frenchman. Uh, if you're an atheist, you can't really be a Frenchman. If you're a Protestant, you yeah. can't really be a Frenchman and I see that rising. So I would say for example American evangelicalism right now its politics is a politics of a, a Christian nationalism that is a Christian integralism. So you can't really be an American if you're not a Christian.
3: Yeah, okay, I get it. I think first of all in terms of reformational thought there was a very um a very it had a very deep sense that it had the solution to the world's problems in a way that I think we're coming to terms with a little bit now but that the whole system of of reformational philosophy, if you look back to Doyard and Vollenhoven, was that it could diagnose where everything kind of goes wrong and then recommend the right path. And I think that's not helpful, but that doesn't mean that that thought tradition doesn't have any resources for our present moment, because I, I really think it does. So my colleague, Nick Ansel, is really exploring in a more radical way what a non-hierarchical view of covenant between human creatures and God and what it means to walk with God on the path of redemption and being invited by God to contribute to building the community of solidarity. And um, I think we need to radicalize uh, our understanding of covenant partnership and human agency and freedom within that. That might sound quite um, rebellious or uh, unorthodox. You know, our tradition is always so fond of quoting Abraham Kuyper's Every Square Inch or Dutch literal translations. There's a thumb breadth over which Christ does not cry mine. I've always felt we've got to stop quoting that so much. I don't disagree with the underlying sentiment, but it makes Jesus sound like a like a you know a selfish three year old grabbing his toys or something. <laughs> That's always bothered me, right? Because the, the precise position of the upside down understanding of biblical sovereignty is that the sovereign uh, relinquishes control and becomes vulnerable, and wants to enter into a relationship with creation in which space God created God is welcomed back into that space. And that's why I think we have to think about uh, what the Reformational tradition might be, be contributing right now through through the biblical exegetical work of people like Nick Ansel and and others. And I might want to put myself in that category. But it is a point of tension in our tradition. But I really think there's something going on there that we need to pay attention to.
2: Great. Well, I think this has been a very rich and insightful conversation. Um, it's been great to hear from each of you, Gideon and Ron, your thoughts on what's especially pressing for us as we think about our our current political climate. Um, And it's also been, been great to hear you comment on each other's work. So I'll just conclude by saying thanks very much for being a part of the conversation with us at Critical Faith. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: Great to be here. Thank you.
1: And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Andrew, what's your pleasure?
2: Well, my pleasure, since it's you and me talking... Mark, um, mm-hmm. it's hard not to bring up baseball. Oh, no doubt. But this, I guess, it's a kind of an, anticipa- an anticipatory pleasure because uh, baseball has not started yet and won't start for a while. However, there was interesting news that uh, George Springer will join the Blue Jays for the next. Quite interesting news. Yeah, for the next season, um, which is interesting because he's a fantastic—he's uh, a fantastic player, but he's an especially good um, hitter. Um, so I'm really looking forward to what the the lineup looks like um for the jays with george springer on there it's a bit of a, a strange kind of awkward pleasure though because george springer was part of that that houston team that was caught yeah. using using tv to steal signs and all that that scandal um
1: and garbage cans don't forget about the garbage cans
2: yeah the banging yeah the,
1: the <laughs> houston the houston asterisks
2: so you know it's it's a bit awkward because it's hard to it's hard not to have that sort of linger in one's mind but whatever it's it's pro sports <laughs> it's hard to get to. uh nitpicky about it, I think. That's my pleasure for this for this week.
1: Yeah. Well, we share that pleasure. And to be honest for me, when they signed him, all the lingering feelings just went away. I'll just say right. that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> So you can you can have that reflect on my character if you want. Uh but that's just the way it is. So yeah. Yeah.
2: I also wanna just call call it now the uh the tagline um Springer has come for the Jays. because oh, nice. I can't imagine the- that's not gonna be taken up. Um so I just want to put on the record saying that I thought of that first.
1: Yeah. And yeah. springer training, you know. Right. Yes. Even better. Wow. Yeah. So my pleasure this week is kind of jumping off from the recent Super Bowl, uh, where the weekend uh played the halftime show, which was um extravagant to say the least. But my pleasure's not so much the halftime show, but the weekend's new album, and specifically one song on the weekend's new album, which is In Your Eyes, which is like this 80s jam um, with a sax solo at the end, which is really amazing. And I just like, I might be up late. All right. Last night I was up late making bread and I'm just like dancing. I shouldn't be dancing because people like sleep beneath the kitchen sometimes, but um, uh, I'm dancing while I'm making bread because uh, it's, it's a jam. Let's just say that. So, yeah. The weekend in your eyes is my pleasure for this week.
2: That's it for our show this week. Stay with us in the weeks to come as we continue to ask friends and colleagues to reflect on political life after 2020 in this series. If you're interested in digging deeper into these and other topics with Ron or Gideon, They each have remote courses taking place this summer. Ron will be teaching Pragmatism, Race, and Religion as an intensive starting in June, and his course will be paying special attention to Black Pragmatism this year. And Gideon will be teaching Lead from Where You Are as an intensive course in August. If you'd like to join any of these or our other upcoming courses, which are now available remotely, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu to learn more. You can also email our registrar Elizabeth R.S. at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might
1: have. If you'd like to know more about the Centre for Philosophy, Religion and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Ron as at Kuipers Ronald. You can follow Gideon as at Gideon Strauss. You can follow me as at Mark Standish. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.